There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, Christmas is over for another year. People have stopped giving things away. Well, except for governments, of course. They always have a pile of money to support various individuals or companies, not just suppliers of PPE during pandemics, but industries that arguably might not survive without government money, like agriculture, for example. So how do governments choose where to put their money, given that they are notoriously bad at picking winners? And there is a danger, of course, that any subsidies they provide might have unintended consequences, like wiping out other businesses. And can we simplify the way governments support industry? We'll look at all of that, the perils of government subsidies. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So it seems whenever governments offer any sort of subsidy, you know, it distorts the market somehow. If they were to subsidise electric cars, for example, will it stop investment in another technology which might have been even better for the environment? One of the reasons, of course, given in the UK for leaving the EU was because the UK was paying towards a pot of money that was being sloshed about in subsidies across Europe with no benefit to the people of Britain. In fact, uh, you know, if you subsidise one business or one country then you do put another business or another country at a disadvantage. So, Steve, should governments just butt out of subsidies? Uh, Is it one of those things that seems like a good idea, but the repercussions of it are never really quite understood until it's too late? I think it's one of those things where, and you can certainly see this in the Australian case, where pork barrelling can be a real problem. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, some people like, like Paul Samuelson, for example, who knew that banks created money, uh, he was quite happy to say well, he didn't want people to understand that because if they do, the politicians will exploit it and uh, will get pork barrelling. He said, so it's better if they're ignorant about how the system actually works than knowing how it works. And uh, what, you, what I think we have these days is ignorance combined with pork barrelling anyway, uh, which is quite scary. So um, there is a danger to government subsidies. Uh, but at the same time, they can be very effective in if you actually have a government doing the right thing, then if you want to encourage, for example, a movement to electric vehicle manufacturing or to solar solar cell manufacturing, then a subsidy to get over the stage where a a new business is unprofitable uh, is quite a worthwhile idea. Yeah, but you've got to pick, haven't you? You've got to... You've got to pick the ideas and then you've got to pick the company. So, you know, in that introduction, who's to say, you know, the, um, you know, it's like, uh, you know, Ford motor cars, you know, and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, if if people had chosen, they would have asked for a a faster horse. The same with electric cars. Who's to say, you know, you could subsidize electric cars for a long time, but there actually might have been a better way. Uh, of uh, of providing the same solution uh, that would be even better for the environment or ultimately w- would be cheaper you've got to you've got to pick the horse and that's a dangerous thing for governments to do isn't it yeah but this is where mariana mazakuto's work comes in because you know what when you, it, it's 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 nice to give a little a nice abstract statement like that but often occur, you can say well what what actually is government uh, things like a government institution like the CSIRO, for example, the Commonwealth of Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation that used to be Australia's premier 
research body. What it does is it funds extremely intelligent people to, to play with new ideas and see what happens. And uh, speaking from personal experience of working inside the CSRO for, as a consultant for some time, uh, you, you can get some truly brilliant people who just like being in that environment rather than being in a commercial mm. environment. And it's, it's enabling those people to work on ideas uh, for, the, for, the, for the sake of the idea. Uh, that is, uh, uh, you know, a major reason why government spending and government subsidies can be worthwhile. And the, the classic, of course, being uh, Kennedy. And now, of course, we know why Kennedy started the space race. Well, not the only reason, but the one that was a strong motivator. The Russians put a satellite and a, a person into orbit before America did. And, the, oh, my God, we're losing out to the Russians. Can't have that. So you go for the space race. And he says, we try to do these things not because they are easy, but because they are difficult. Mm. And in, in, in this situation, what that is allied to is the government money creation can enable you to do things uh, w without you know, needing to acquire debt in, in the sense of private debt um, at the same time. And that is a freedom which en enables you, know, the, you to harness creative energies. And it would be very hard to imagine a world without the space race in terms of what that did for technology and our use of space. And like technologies like this one right now, where a larger reason we're able to talk to each other uh, is the existence of you know, satellites, optical fiber, et cetera, et cetera. And a huge part of that came out of the space race. Mm. But even though you might be creating that money, the government might be creating that money there's still, you know, there's still going to be a, a ceiling, a point at which that, you know, you, you could be creating a crazy amount of money if you just said, well, we want to research anything at all. So you're still going to have to pick and choose, aren't you? So, well, you, And then do, you've also got the, the case where, you know, the, you'll create the money for putting park barrel, for putting parking stations next to railway pla platforms in your favourite electorates. And that's what yeah. we're seeing, an incredible level of rorts in Australia <laughs> right now. You know, one electorate with a, with a Liberal seat, next to a Labour seat getting 40 Steve times. Steve Keane, you are sounding like a politician already. You know, you've there only you been, go. At, the, only up, been mate, at the game for a week or two and already <laughs> you're, you're just using me now as a sounding board to practice before you talk to there the... There you go. Uh, before oh, you talk okay. to the I rednecks thought, on the I radio. you were too clever there. to pick me up. Okay. <laughs> but look, uh, I just when you get into specifics though, so let me give you an example. I just okay. looked at an EU website for subsidies, an EU website calling for tenders to demonstrate the use of digital logbooks for buildings and i quote there is a need to demonstrate and realize the potential benefits of using digital depositories of information that accompany buildings throughout their life cycle these digital building logbooks dbls can potentially result in greater efficiency circularity and transparency in building stock which all sounds a bit random now this is not really maybe this isn't i mean the government is offering a grant so it's not really a subsidy well it is a subsidy they're wanting a company mm -hmm. to produce these log books that are going to make buildings efficient but I, why wouldn't the if it's making buildings efficient why wouldn't the private sector do that but it's but this, something but so specific that this is it's this would you know it, you might say companies are just going to do this as a tax deduction for 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 research or it might be the better a better way of doing it actually is to say well look you know just if you're doing research, get a tax deduction. The scheme's available for that. This just seems a very, a very specific thing. I'd rather, you know, the situation that you're giving, you know, the CSIRO, where you've got a group of people and you say, yeah, go and research stuff that you think is going to be useful for society. Uh, we'll put some sort of boundaries on it. But when you start getting into politicians giving very specific requirements and calling out for tenders for things that you're just thinking, well, how are they choosing? That? Well, in, in fact, when you look inside a lot of these, it's often because the government provides a way for companies to express 
common needs that they themselves can't fulfil. Um, so, you know, industries, it's necessary to have mm. standards to enable uh, products produced by one company to interact with products produced by another company. So, like you, you mentioned having one bunch of, of producers producing the uh, cables for plugging into computers and another bunch of companies producing the holes uh, in the computers themselves. Unless they coordinate, uh, you, you have a, you know, an impossible uh, environment. So, but they and that's would. What it, would when you but go, they would, think wouldn't they? They would, they would, they, they would, they would coordinate. Not necessarily. It's often it's hard to get people in the same bloody room. You may well find that that particular uh, example you've chosen may have come out of government consultations with the industry saying we need something like this uh, to be able to, to uh, progress or to get more. You know, we all need yeah. it. We, we know that's going to reduce our costs, but um, it's none of us, if any of us do it independently, we can't get the same standard. Uh, we don't trust each other. Uh, so we need you to do it for us. Yeah, but it does seem to, the, the government is getting in very, and you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, uh, a, a you know, I come from a very similar side of politics to you. Uh, and, you know, yeah. I'm happy to see the government get involved where it needs. But this seems very, getting very deep, getting the, you know, getting the the boots on and getting stuck yeah. in the mud. I, I, I mean, I, you can't help think, thinking that if you go down to that level, uh, everything, you, you, the government is just going to be in this quagmire of things that they're involved in, all demanding money, and just where does it stop? And and how do they ensure when well, they... I, I can actually use my brother-in-law as an example there because one of the roles he had before he retired was uh, he was on the uh, uh, Electronic Commerce uh, Board of the, Australia, the uh, New South Wales government, and he found himself negotiating with the building companies over building up a, a, a database protocol to enable electronic uh, contracts between the government and the private sector. And this was an initiative that the, the government began because they found themselves having to put out to tender to all the private builders. And it was easier for them if they could use you know, on, online uh, rather than paper documentation because it was easier to verify and transfer and so on. He ended up being poached by Boral. He was so good. Uh, that they they kept on making more and more offers, and he finally said, "Okay, I can't turn that much down. That much money, I'll leave the public sector and go and work for you in the private sector." But it really was the, the, the state functioning as a coordinating body for the industry itself, and what it was doing is something that the uh, that the industry wanted done, but it would be very very hard for any of them to start it off initially because of the distrust between different suppliers. Right. But they would surely they would sort it out though if they if it was stopping their businesses progressing. I mean that's oh here uh, we go. I've got a neoclassical economist on the line. Hello, <laughs> no, well, the well, hey, let me give you an ex- let me is it on the let me give you- because somebody must have picked it up. <laughs> well, on, well, okay. Well, uh, during the uh, during the great rail road uh, or railway rollout in the UK, you mm. had. Uh, uh, dozens of uh, of different companies building railways all around the country, but they seem to manage to agree, with one or two minor exceptions, uh, on using the same gauge. Oh, mate, but God Almighty, you're getting to put British Rail as an example of the private sector innovating. <laughs> Holy hell! Well, yeah, well, no, but it was, but of course, it was enormous. Steve, 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 the rollout of railways in the UK, yeah, I must acknowledge, was an enormous innovation. It spread it far and in the wide. Century, Sep- yeah. Separate companies doing it, and all, uh, and all agreeing. And that, and that was that was essential. The nineteenth century innovation was essential. That was people seeing enormous profit by bringing in a brand new technology. Mm. But of course, that was a classic case of overinvestment. It was a good thing. I mean, we and this this actually is something that Schumpeter. 
critics about engineering. Uh, quite well on the, uh, the the theory of economic development. He says that uh, you'll get a, uh, a new industry coming along and the expectations of gain are so great that you get an over-construction of the industry and the initial uh, creators will go bankrupt. But then in the aftermath, the society itself benefits from the increased infrastructure. And the same thing happened with the rollout of telecommunications in, um, in the 1990s in America. You had and so much cable being laid that 90% of it wasn't even turned on. Mm. And that just got, they called it the black... What was it called? You'd know it. You used to, used to be in telecommunications. What they called the dark, the dark cable problem? Mm. Dark fibre. Yeah. Huh? Dark fibre, yeah. And I, I, I think they had, what, about at least 10 times as much fibre laid as there was actually demand for. Yeah. Um, now, that might be partly why we have cheap internet these days. So I'm not sure the extent to which that... I don't hear talk about dark fibre anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's, uh, yeah I mean, because you know it's a- endless capacity, isn't it? Basically, that's the the, the idea behind it. Well, you don't you don't have cheap broadband, of course, in Australia. So, uh, just on that, Elon Musk is uh, wanting to having actually said, uh, and I know you're an Elon Musk fan fanboy, so coming out give an answer to this because he actually said uh, governments shouldn't control capital. He's against government subsidies, although he has received billions. <laughs> but then again, he, he these companies wouldn't have got the start without government subsidies. So, well, there we are. Yeah, you know, it's okay. one of these. I, th- I think you have to accept that they exist and, and they're always going to exist and it's a question of of, of trying you to draw the- ach- achieve the best outcome for them rather than saying we should ban them. Yeah, where, and where you draw the line. I'm just wondering, where, you know, is there a, can you come up with a, a model of, you know, what's going to work and what doesn't? So Elon Musk is, for example, he wants to um, spend $16 billion to uh, with his satellite internet project, which is going to d- deliver, I think it's like low orbit satellite, so it can give yep. low latency, fast broadband to the less urbanised parts of America. Um, so should he get a subsidy for that? A man like Elon Musk, sixteen billion, he almost certainly. He, this, this is he, partly Masakuto's point that um, you, you, what you need the government spending for is, is to be the loss leader in an industry which ultimately you need. Um, so, like, a, mm. nobody's going to say we, we don't need satellites, um, but satellites only came about because of the space race, which was, uh, uh, you know, initially uh, the Russian-American rivalry, which is all run through the government sector. Now what we're getting is uh, the end of, end of it. You, you know, you, you would imagine uh, that, oh, that's a sort of public utility. That should be run out by the government. But there's no longer any advantage for the government doing that. Uh, is a, a private uh, innovator, and the the difference with the, with Musk's firms is this incredible emphasis on uh, tr- uh, on iterative design. So it, to get that sort of mentality into a government department, I think would be extremely difficult. It it does work better in a private private company, but to do it, you've got to have deep pockets. Yeah, well, he has got deep pockets. Noticed, the question yeah. is if he can make money out of it. If, if he can make money out of it, ultimately, uh, why wouldn't he just go ahead? Would, would you know? Would he need well, he, to go He doesn't. He, but the say subsidies uh, he's getting is he's you know most of his Falcon Nine rockets are putting government satellites into orbit, not all of them, but a substantial part of the demand he's got is from governments wishing to put uh, put satellites into orbit. So mm-hmm. even though he's saying he doesn't want a subsidy, uh, a large part of his revenue is coming from government expenditure. What if uh, if in putting these these satellites out for consumers though he couldn't make the numbers match in that the cost of running it of putting it up and maintaining it and the payback over a reasonable period of time was more than the price that people were prepared to pay for it so he would find that he doesn't actually have a sustainable service should the government then step in and say well okay we'll subsidize you because we do want these people to get broadband or you have the government buying the remnants of it after a private sector venture fails 
which is another possibility. I mean, uh, but but it wouldn't that, get there. if he knew if he knew the numbers weren't going to stack up. He wouldn't pursue it, would he? So he wouldn't let it fail. He he would have done his research. The, the numbers will and surely stack up, and you know, particularly you know, you know stupid third world countries like Australia with terrible internet. <laughs> I think he mm. might be buying more than uh, making money out of more than just rural areas with uh, with uh, situations like uh, you know the broadband situation in this country. So, well, um, yeah, there's a, there's a crazy, I mean, going a little bit off at a tangent here, but we're on to my favourite subject, of course, which is the Australian Broadband Network. Huh. If he was to try and roll out a service and sell it within Australia, he'd have to pay, particularly if he was selling it into urban areas, he'd have to pay the government a cross-subsidy fee uh, for the amount the government is spending subsidising uh, broadband in the bush. I think it's about $5 a month per hmm. customer. That's why you'll never get cheap broadband because everyone is paying for the very expensive uh, cost subsidisation of a uh, of a network that um, you know hasn't been particularly well rolled out in regional Australia. But anyway, and it should have been something which the government did in the first place because again, this is one of the major reasons why you want we do on government subsidies. There are some services that you don't want to be related to the distribution of demand. Uh, because mm. that they, they, the 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 power of the product comes out of the network effect, and uh, if you if you exclude parts of society from that network because it's not profitable to service them, then the network is less effective. So that's one of the the best cases in terms of a, a government subsidy or, or government undertaking tasks which the private sector could also undertake. It's because of the private sector does it. They 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 won't roll out to the entire network, whereas the government does it will, and then. That ultimately gives you a, a framework, and at a later stage, you can fine tune what the government has done with the with the private sector network. But do you, uh, if you're providing something that is, you know, touch and go as to whether it's going to be profitable in in the short term, do does the government subsidise the company that's providing that service, and therefore is only supporting one company, or it might have to support several companies? It can't, you know, it can't be seen to be just supporting one if there's others that want to play in the same game. Or does it support the public? So, for example, if uh, you know, if, if taking the, the broadband because it's a good example, does the government actually say, "Well, okay, we're going to uh, we're going to pay companies to to provide cheaper broadband in areas which it's going to be hard for them to uh, to match the price that people are prepared to pay," or do they say, "Charge what you like, and we are going to tell everybody in those areas that they can claim back five dollars or ten dollars or whatever per month." Uh, so that the subsidy is actually going to the to the consumer, and they still have that freedom to choose, and you still have that element of competition, because that's one of the problems, yeah. isn't it? If you subsidise, I mean, I think South Korea did something uh, like that. I, mean, a, I think I told you the story of the uh, the, the ex leader of the China, of this, the South Korean, not South Korean, South Korean Communist Party, coming out to do some research when he yeah, yeah, something yeah. years ago. Yeah, and wandering around the build the the, the, the um, flat I rented for him, trying to find where to plug in his Ethernet to, Ethernet cable, and I had to tell him it's all dial-up modem over here, mate, and he was horrified. <laughs> and, you know, and then it turned out that the reason it happened is the South Korean government said we don't told told effectively told the telecommunications companies, we don't care how you do it, uh, but you have to collectively ensure that every house in South Korea has a, has a T what's it called a T two junction. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, which yeah. Is Ethernet. I just call them Ethernet points, but yeah, Ethernet yeah, yeah. points, or you can't, or you can't operate in the in the uh, in the South Korean uh, telecommunications space. And look at the number of South telecommunications companies that are South Korean these days. You know, the fact that yeah. every every kid had a had a Ethernet connection in his bedroom uh, is a major part of why you know you've got enormous South Korean telecommunications companies developing over time. So what about? 
subsidies versus tax incentives then so uh oh. when i was growing up the uh just about remember the pre-thatcher era the, um and oh. there were tax incentives for companies to locate outside the southeast of england in a, a bit like boris is trying to do now with free ports uh, dotted mm-hmm. around the uk uh, you know where there's a, a low tax or non-existent tax to try and encourage growth in those areas but, you know the old growth pole theory that you invest in one town the benefits are going to spread uh Uh, around the region so pre-thatcher there was a bit of a carrot and stick going on in that you had that uh, that tax incentive to locate outside the southeast you also had industrial development certificates so if you wanted to build a factory over five thousand square feet uh, this sounds very draconian these days but Uh you had to apply for an industrial development certificate if you particularly if you wanted to invest um in the southeast so you know almost certainly would get refused because they'd want the uh that that investment to happen in other parts of the country where i think corporate taxes were were also lower mm. as well so sort of a carrot and stick measure um is that too far going too far down down the one road and is it better to do that where you're giving the the freedom for companies to particularly when you're looking at a problem like that which is you know regional diversity regional spread yeah, I mean, it, it's in nothing I think we've got a hard and fast answer to, but if I'm going from people that I've dealt with in who, who are engineers working in the public sector, um, a lot of it comes down to you, you want to have people working in the public sector who actually see that as their role to, to, to improve the overall society rather than working for the gain of an individual company. And if you have them and they're technically skilled and they're given the mm. money necessary to do their jobs, uh, then you can get a good outcome out of that. It's it's really basically getting away from the Buchanan attitude that everybody's in it for their own good, uh, their own gain rather, not their own, your good's a bad word used in that situation, but for, they're only in it for their own gain and you've got to constrain their behaviour, et cetera, et cetera. When you realise that people go into the public service because they actually want to serve the public uh, and, and if, if you provide them with the resources necessary to do it properly and a decent pay and decent stability, they won't get necessarily the same pay rates as in the private sector but they don't want that they 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 want to do you know they're happy to have a stable job and feel like they're doing doing good and being paid well Um, then that that sort of mentality ends up with a better outcome than trying to work out a set of rules that are what's the best way to do things so having more like the csiro perhaps for different uh, types of industry where you're saying, well, okay, if there's if there's market failures in this industry that need to be corrected, like that example we we're giving about the digital logbooks for buildings, clearly very important. Mm. Then there would be a government body that would be spending the time and investing in that, helping the private sector. And then uh, once their work was done, then the private sector could pick it up and run with it. That sort of approach. Yeah. Rather yeah. than actually saying, well, we need someone else outside the government to do this and we'll fund you to do it. They should try and do it more themselves. Is that Sort yeah, of what you're saying. Yeah. So sort the, of what I'm saying. I mean, so, so uh, the the problem yeah, is there, we there are some things I'd never want the government to provide. For example, food. Okay, uh, having been mm-hmm. in a few institutions where the where you have government provide food, it's dreadful. You get this sort of you know automated kitchens and mass production of goulash, and that's all you ever get for lunch. Uh, that's where you want small, agile private sector suppliers and you subsidize them to some extent but for the large infrastructural stuff it makes a lot of sense to have the government doing it itself yeah well actually you've touched on a very important point there which is food subsidies because there's a it seems like there's a a million and one complexities there because we support meat production uh, rather than supporting the products that are better for us so in the u.s alone for example meat and dairy 
uh, receive 63% of the total agricultural subsidies. This is according to earth.org, the website. 63% goes to meat and dairy compared to fruit and vegetable producers only receive 0.04% of total subsidies. So that sort of explains why beef beggars are very cheap and fruit is very expensive because we are helping the industry to ensure we lead an unhealthy lifestyle because all the investment is going into, into meat and dairy products. All yeah, the and this, that, that is that is like I'll take that as one example that I would be pushing were I in England. And that is, I, I would like to see them borrowing as much as they can from the Dutch and having a lot of greenhouse uh, uh, yeah. food production. Because uh, if you have a continued breakdowns in supply chain coming our way, then the thirty percent of food that the UK can't import will have to be provided domestically, and uh, that's an enormously good reason to have greenhouses for growing things yeah. like fruit. Absolutely, not just food supplies, but. Uh, I mean, almost getting back to where, where we started this discussion, but just how it's, you know, it can be used for the for the wrong purposes as well. So the U.S. exports a mm. lot of wheat. Countries which are reliant on U.S. wheat, uh, the U.S. has a, you know, a, a lot of political influence on those countries. So, uh, you know, there's there's a, an incentive for government subsidies to lower the cost of goods to make them competitive internationally for political purposes, which is obviously not a good mm. thing. Yeah, yeah. We need to make sure we avoid all of that. But, I mean, agriculture is just, I mean, if you look at the, uh, you know, the way the European Union has uh, managed the the, uh, agricultural subsidies, I mean, it's gone so badly wrong for so long. Yeah, I mean, that's when I used used to get dragged into a school exercises all the time looking at the the, the, the food and agricultural policies. Butter mountains. Uh, But the the French argument was always back, we Mm. want to maintain our countryside. And... uh, uh, you know, when, when you spend a bit of time in the French countryside, you can sort of say, hey, but that didn't work out too badly. But of course, it's given immense political power to French farmers, which uh, sometimes the French politicians rue having done. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing applies. You know, the UK countryside is uh, is very dependent on uh, agriculture as well. So, uh, yeah, I don't know how you how you solve all, all of that. But it's um, I mean, the common phrase for subsidies is to compensate for market failure, isn't it? But but whose market failure is it? I mean, you could argue that agricultural subsidies in Europe and the US are driving down crop prices, which is making it very hard for other nations to compete, for example. So de- developing nations who are very dependent on agricultural revenue are being uh, left out to dry by those uh, by those subsidies in, in Europe and the United States. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to try to answer that one. It's... Um, <laughs> But uh, when you start but for, getting, it I mean, just gets back to the argument, doesn't it? That for every single time you tr- you try and provide a subsidy, there's going to be a, an unforeseen repercussion. And well, it, the, you know, this, this is why I need to think about things in a systems way because there are unintended mm. consequences everywhere if you simply focus on one part of the system. Yeah. So, which gets back to, can you simplify it? I mean, is there? So, could you, for example, say, well, okay, there there will be. Uh, so, in the UK, for example, you can claim deductions for research and development. If you're a small business, you get an extra one hundred and thirty percent on top of the normal hundred percent deduction you get on any cost. So, you basically get a two hundred and thirty percent deduction. I mean, it does sound like you could you could abuse that, but you actually have to show to get that money. You actually have to show that you you had a problem that you were trying to solve, and the yeah, and you have to and you had to spend money to, to do it. it. Yeah. You also have to show actually that you were successful in it, which might be a bit of a problem because you could spend a lot of money and actually, for no fault of your own, get it wrong. But isn't 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 that a bit easier? I mean, I like your idea that you've got to have you know people working within the public sector, and they could be overseeing this sort of thing as well as uh, as looking for, and, and and in doing that, looking for for market failure, things that they could get involved in. 
uh, almost like little hubs. But, but see, the, the market itself, one, one of the reasons we have market failure is overcapacity when everybody tries to dive into the same market at once uh, to, to, in the belief they're the only ones who are competing for it. And this is one of the reasons, again, that government coordination is, is a sensible idea because often it'll mean you have less wasteful investment because the government can say, well, what's, what's the level of, de- of demand capacity you're all trying to feed? Oh, you're all you're accurately you're trying to provide 2.5 times the expected demand. Uh, let's just reduce this back a bit. And in fact, what the government subsidy ends up doing is reducing the level of overinvestment rather than causing more overinvestment. Now, how's that? How's that happening? So let's let me try and find oh, yeah, it. in build, building capacity. I mean, for example, mm. if you uh, look at uh, people building high rises in a city, um, then they will be estimating how many office uh, uh, businesses are going to open up and will need office space, and they will use the and and they will in, in effect. First of all, they'll all have optimistic expectations. This is the classic euphoric expectations thing that Minsky spoke so much about. Uh, and secondly, they'll try to capture more of that market share than they actually will end up doing. So everybody's targets are to get, you know, one and a half times as much market share as they expect in a market they expect to be one and a half times bigger than it actually is. And you get two and a, two and a quarter times as much capacity being produced. So a government that says a bit of regulation here and says, hang on a sec, we're going to regulate you and slow you down, let's now get together and do some capacity planning, um, uh, then that ends up with being a less wasteful system and leaving it to the competitive urges of the market system. Right. But how do you do that? So if you say, well, okay, we've got five developers here who've all got overambitious targets, does the government say you've got to whittle them all down by 20% and then they come back and say, well, let's screw you. Our business model doesn't make any sense anymore. And and, and isn't it, when they've built it, if they've built too much, I mean, we, we never, we're never we never going to have too many houses, are we? Let's face it. We're going to have uh, too many skyscrapers, though. That's one of the you know, classic indices mm-hmm. of, of, uh, of speculation is the skyscraper index. And, and that's what you get coming out of it. If you leave it in an unregulated fashion, then you get you know, runaway growth of skyscrapers and then empty offices. Like driving around Bangkok, which I was doing until recently, uh, you see so many literally empty towers. I mean, concrete towers, 30, 40 storeys tall, not even any glass on the outside because they're all being built during the 1997 boom. The 1977 bust happens and they stand there as empty monoliths to a a speculative bubble. Yeah, well, you're talking bricks and mortars that may be a little bit different, isn't it? If you look at, for example... There's a million and one delivery companies that have uh, have expanded huh. during the during the pandemic. I mean, the the roads. If you if you're, I'm out for a morning cycle, uh, I'll, I'll almost certainly get uh, you know get, get within an inch of my life from one of the early morning delivery vans. I was going down, actually walking down one road the other day, and I saw a very short stretch of road, and there were five delivery vans, wow. <laughs> one road at the same time, <laughs> uh, delivering parcels for Amazon and food deliveries and all that sort of stuff. So they're all over the place. Now they have, um, you know, they're all going for a slice of the market. They've probably got ambitious forecasts for what the next few years are going to be like. Some of them are going to be right, some of them are going to be wrong. In that case, who cares? Who cares? Some yeah. of them will go under, some of them will survive. Yeah, and there's the certain amount that of the chaos of the market is not a bad thing, definitely. Um, but often mm. what you get out of these government ventures is attempts to coordinate the market, uh, you know, with, with common standards that enable it to expand more rapidly in the future. So you. you it, it, it comes down to respecting, I think, rather than having a, uh, you know, we, we should slash the government out of existence, respecting that a, wealth, a well-funded government with, with intelligent people working for it is likely to come up with you know, more sensible compromises than leaving it to the, uh, you know, badly trained uh, mob we've got out of the out of the Buchanan attitude to the public sector. And, uh, and I think your other point 
hidden in our discussion was the fact that they could act as a moderator yeah. as well yeah. if they are that that, that could help uh, maybe not stipulating precisely yeah how they move forward but can provide evidence and a mediation to ensure the, oh. that they all behave sensibly and, and and with the offer of they might have some money if they if you behave and uh, don't oversupply we've got a few government subsidies which we might be able to send your way which you might find useful so yeah that could, could happen. Have, it could happen <laughs> all right very nice good all right ne- next week i want to talk about this this thing that's uh, struck us all since the uh, the pandemic the great resignation mm. what's causing that steve we'll look at that next week thanks yeah. for your time okay all right and i should say happy new year as well thanks for listening to us all last year and welcome to 2022 uh, we'll see you next week thanks for listening If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.